You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello and welcome to COVID-19 Update for Healthcare Professionals, Voices from the Frontlines podcast. Today's session is Three Family Physicians Share Their Experiences. This podcast was recorded with the following voices, Drs. Jen Baxter, Alyssa Cantaruti, and David Catterall. The recording date was April 2nd, 2020. You may notice a few audio imperfections due to the live recording of this session. It was recorded remotely from the presenters' homes and without professional equipment. Thanks for joining us. I would now like the panel to introduce themselves. I'm Dr. Jen Baxter, and I have nothing to disclose. Alyssa? Hi, I'm Dr. Alyssa Cantarudi. I also have nothing to disclose. And David? Hi, I'm Dr. David Catterall. I don't have anything to disclose. Thank you very much, everybody. And Jen, could you introduce yourself, please? Uh, sure. So, um... I am a rural family physician. I practice in, uh, my, my family practices in Gibsons, and then I work uh, out of the Seashelt Hospital as well. Um, so I, under a fee-for-service model, provide broad-spectrum family practice, um, and then provide inpatient hospital care as part of a group of three physicians rounding, uh, sharing, sharing rounds one week at a time. And I also serve as the medical director at the long-term care facility that we have in Gibsons. Um, within the last few years, I've also done ER and obstetrical work, um, but was not doing those just prior to COVID. Um, my patients would typically see me in office um, with home visits as needed. And then of course, at the long-term care facility when needed there as well. Um, that's kind of a general overview of my practice. Thank you. And um, I believe we're having a little bit of trouble with advancing the slides, Stephanie. That's Jen's practice. Jen, do you want to just mention? Oh, sorry, go back one. There you go. Sure, yeah. So um, you can certainly see a, a spread of ages. Um, with my, my prior maternity work, I certainly have a bit of a younger cohort. Um, and then I, I obviously have some complex care patients as well as as part of my panel. Um, I would say I have probably a, a more significant proportion of mental health work um, and, and patients that fall under that category. But otherwise providing, um, you know, doing procedures in the office and, and providing full spectrum family care in the outpatient setting. Thanks, Jen. And um, we will get to this um, a little bit later about uh, Jen's um, setup that she has for afterwards in there. But Lisa, turn it over to you to introduce yourself and your practice. Sure, yeah. So I work in an urban setting in Vancouver uh, in a fee-for-service practice. I also provide uh, full service family medicine to my patients. Uh, they, we also have yeah, a fee for service model. Uh, typically my patients would see me in the office, uh, which they used to do by making a phone call, booking an appointment and then coming in and see me. Uh, I do house calls as well. I tend to have actually a little bit of a, a more geriatric skew to my practice because I took over from 
a physician who retired and her cohort had kind of grown with her. So that's my current telehealth setup on the left. And then on the right is just the room where I spend most of my days um, pre-COVID. Uh, and then I think on the next slide, you'll see that uh, just the bit of a picture of my demographics. So the, this is a summary of my encounters for the last three years. And so it does kind of reflect uh, a bit of an older patient population. And I've I even got like a pretty surprising number of my 90 to 100 year olds, um, which I think is pretty great. Uh, and then the next slide over is just the actual demographic. So of course, those older people tend to have a few more of the encounters, but um, I'll get into this later, but having a bit of an older cohort has brought some unique challenges in, a, in the setting of COVID. Thank you very much, uh, Lisa and David. Hi everyone. I uh, I work in a uh, intake-based um, uh, sort of downtown east side clinic in Vancouver called the Pender Community Health Center. Um, we work on with a vulnerable uh, population that struggles generally with poverty, uh, substance use, um, as well as uh, significant mental health concerns. Uh, I work in a multidisciplinary clinic, and we do a lot of team-based care. Uh, and we're under a sessional fee model. Um, so we have nurse practitioners, social work, counseling, nursing, uh, regular outreach, both physicians and nursing, uh, as well as um, as well as uh, we do call and we do full uh, family medicine pr outpatient practice there. Uh, and we share a roof with a number of uh, specialists who do um, who rotate through as well as including in uh, infectious disease, psych, uh, rheumatology and general internal medicine as well as dermatology. Generally my practice is um, uh, it's adults only um, and we have an intake process to sort of to make sure that you know people living in the in the catchment area also have high needs uh, as we get we're privileged to have a little bit more extra time with our patients with the sessional model. Thanks everyone for uh, telling us who you are and, and how you used to practice, what it used to look like. And I'm sure things have uh, changed considerably for you as they have for others. And um, we're really curious as to how you're actually delivering care now. And I wonder, David, if you might be able to go first and uh, show us what your setup looks like and tell us some details about the technology and how the patients are viewing things and staff, how sure. things are going. That's good. So um, before COVID, um, our, our clinic is kind of like a, a part waiting room, part refuge area for the community. We'd have a lot of people come in and hang out and have oatmeal and uh, use the phone, access harm reduction supplies, uh, community and home care resources. Most patients, I'd say, Oh, at least 50% are on, on a walk-in basis, uh, and uh, the other 50% or so are booked appointments, usually by phone or, or through outreach, outreach workers or that sort of thing. Uh, we also have a number of groups that we had at the clinic um, with, uh, with uh, addiction groups, the hepatitis C group, uh, counseling groups, mindfulness groups, all sorts of things to try and serve the community that we were working as best as we could. Now, obviously, with with, um, with the change with COVID, we've had to make a number of changes in this sort of a general evolution. Chris, did you want me to talk about all that now, or 
Yeah, you know, we're getting a lot of questions that are asking about how you're seeing patients and, um, you know, how you're assessing them and the PPEs and the patient flow. So please be very interested in that. Yeah, so um, so just to, to step back a bit, prior to this, we we're seeing most patients would be seen in the clinic in person, um, taken into individual rooms, uh, like a typical family practice. Uh, we'd have nurses who would be doing wound care, uh, as well as other sort of assessments, as well as social work and other multidisciplinary members also seeing patients. Um, so the, the, initially, when we first started to hear about COVID, we, we made some changes straight off the bat when we were first getting to learn about things. We, we would have patients be triaged at the front door, and if they had no signs or any signs of the symptoms we were concerned about, they would get a mask and be asked to wait in the waiting room. You know, as time went by, we realized that that, and, and as more uh, information evolved, we ended up uh, becoming more strict and more strict with uh, the, the ways that we could see patients. Uh, and so we've made a number of changes. Um, so now most patients are either booking by phone uh, or we're, we're trying to preempt uh, the patients themselves, actually. So um, we have, in our clinic, we have a designated room for COVID um, encounters or COVID query, COVID concerns. Um, and that is access. Basically, we have a, a complete restriction on how what pa how patients can come into the the clinic. We have our gate to our clinic closed because most of our patients are walk in. Um, they uh, they talk to a nurse who's in full PPE with um, with uh, eye protection, droplet droplet precautions, uh, and gloves. Uh, you can see here. So we meet them at the front of the door. Um, there's a triage process that goes on, and then the reason why the patient is there, uh, we try and we try to figure out that right at the time. Now, if you can see behind there on that picture, we actually have a monitor uh, with a webcam there, so uh, patients who don't actually need to enter the threshold of the kit, the but can just be uh, assessed by telehealth, will actually use Zoom um, from from our offices or uh, from nursing or or whoever needs to talk to them to arrange a lot of uh, of, of, of the actual care that we're doing. Um, a lot of the clients would be regularly presenting for um, opiate agonist therapy. Um, so a lot of these things we're telling most patients that we can, we can either extend their regular scripts or we can change them from uh, some, depending on the client and we're, we're fairly, we have a relatively small practice between all of us and we have a generally good sense of whether these patients are, are stable enough for things like caries, um, which is a big part of our practice. So making changes um, with, uh, with the way that we're prescribing and, and trying to liaise with uh, pharmacy sort of before the patients even sort of make it to the gate, uh, we're trying to extend prescriptions and, and trying to reach every, as many people as we can by phone before they, before they end up there. If they do end up there, though, we have a process by which whether they'll be seen in the clinic or not. Now, um, for a lot of things, um, uh, uh, patients do actually seem to appreciate, and, and most of them do just want a phone call or, or, a, or a telehealth visit from the front. So we're able to, to manage to do that uh, quite well. Um, and most patients have been responding pretty well to this. There's a few that are very concerned about wanting to be seen, and you know we we're still we will still see patients. 
um, uh, and how we've actually set it up as far as physicians are concerned um, is we have a number of physicians that are sort of in the back in their offices sort of preemptively trying to make sure that we are catching the prescriptions before they run out. We're querying our EMR with the help of our nursing team to make sure that uh, methadone and suboxone and Cadian scripts that are coming due, we're, we're trying to get ahead of that and, and, and trying to renew them in advance, let the patient and the pharmacist know because the patient and the pharmacist usually have the most, or the, the pharmacist usually has the most contact with the patient. So if someone doesn't have a phone, we're trying to contact through them. So, so we've made a number of changes to try and make it a little bit simpler uh, uh, for the patient to have their medications continued, but also to allow them to be able to uh, spend less time uh, in, in a setting where they may be exposed uh, to COVID um, and then also to help to um, minimize exposure of the staff uh, as well. Um, one of the things that we've still managed to do is see some see, um, critically ill patients here. Uh, we haven't, um, like I know some other clinics are, are shutting their doors um, altogether. We, that's not something that we feel is yet possible with our population. Um, and, uh, and, and so we we've still have one physician who's assigned every day to the regular seeing patients. And for each one of those patients that we see, we do full precautions in a designated room where we're doing a full, um, like twice cavi wiped over, um, clean of the entire room, uh, as well as what we would expect to be hospital, like uh, droplet precautions of donning and doffing gowns. Um, you know, so far things have worked reasonably well. Um, the transition was piece by piece. We had a number of team members, including the nursing team and, and the physician team sort of working together to come up with plans for this. And and it's just a constant work in process, but that's that's generally the start of where our our clinic has, has been going to. So liberal use of the phone, trying to preempt um, encounters as much as possible. Um, we have unfortunately had to close down a lot of our other additional services, like um, any of the groups have been canceled. All the subspecialty appointments have generally been canceled um, or are being managed through outreach. Um, and then also we've had to eliminate our ability to have the, the, the waiting room sort of be a refuge for the community with our no longer offering oatmeal and any of those sort of things. Thank you very much, David. And, um, you know, we do have a number of questions that we will get to, but I'd like to hear from Jen and, and Alyssa first. And um, Jen, can you talk about um, what's changed in your practice and how you're delivering care now? The, my standard practice, um, we are doing as much as we can by phone. Um, we are a group of 12 physicians at the clinic, and so there's one physician on site every day that will do physical exams as needed, and so we could um, refer our patients into the clinic for that. Um, we have always offered a walk-in clinic, and so that's also how we're continuing to offer the walk-in service. They're initially triaged by phone, assessed by the physician. If they need a physical exam, then there, that's available. The caveat to all that is that we are, our community has created a respiratory assessment clinic. So the patients that we're seeing in our standard community practice are not the 
COVID suspect patients. They are our non-infectious patients. Um, Certainly, we're using precautions, and for things like maternity patients, they're getting pre-screened um, prior to coming in. And if they were symptomatic, they'd be offered a home visit instead uh, with uh, PPE provided by the health authority. Um, our respiratory assessment clinic uh, has been a really big joint effort between our our health authority, our hospital, and the community physicians in order to get it off the ground. We've had great support from some semi-retired and previously retired physicians who've come back uh, in to help us. So. The, this clinic works by telephone triage initially, so patients all have to phone in, they speak to a physician, and then if a physical exam was warranted, they'd be booked for either a visit in our clinic or a home visit, depending on how frail and vulnerable they might be, and if that would keep the patient safer. Um, again, all of the PPEs provided by the hospital. Um, we have a public health nurse that joins us every day who's available, who does vitals, and if patients were meeting criteria for testing, then they would be tested. Um, through the respiratory assessment clinic as well um, and then of course you know we we don't have we're, we're based out of a, a donated community space a community center of sorts and so um, it, it's pretty rustic as you can see and we don't have a lot of a lot to work with but we certainly have the ability to take vitals and otoscopes um, and then the swabs that we might need so anyone that needs labs or imaging then is referred up to the hospital um, and certainly physicians on the phones would direct refer to the hospital if that's where the patient sounded like they needed to be. Um, when it comes to the hospital side of things, things there have radically changed in our community as well. Uh, we previously would have had, generally speaking, physicians all went in and saw their own patients with a, a group rounding system on the weekends. And we've shifted to a full hospitalist system now. So there's two, three physicians in every day uh, rounding on all the patients in the hospital. We're really trying to minimize foot traffic through the hospital and how many physicians are, are being exposed at a time. We have one team um, of dedicated physicians to our suspect and confirmed COVID patients, and then two to three other um, physicians that are rounding on the remainder of the hospital. Um, and we've done our very best to, to keep our, our non-COVID exposed physicians um, unexposed in the hospital as best we can. So we've got our, our, our COVID ward and then um, our eMERGE docs are the, the two, the COVID rounding physicians and the eMERGE docs are the ones that are doing the physical assessments in the respiratory assessment clinic. And then in order to minimize cross-transfer between uh, long-term care and acute care, we've actually been able to have one physician from our community dedicated to each of the three long-term care facilities on the, the Sunshine Coast. And so they are not going into acute care at this time, um, but one is dedicated to each of those facilities providing any in-person assessments. So the first call would still go to the patient's family physician, but if they required in-person assessment or care, then uh, we have that, those dedicated physicians available. We've also developed a palliative home palliative rounding team for COVID suspect and confirmed patients. Um, and so that's a group of two physicians and a nurse, nurse practitioner who will be providing home palliation service um, for COVID suspect or confirmed patients. Um, and then uh, our certainly our I've also added my name back onto the roster for backup in the eMERGE um, at this time and so certainly we've also seen radical shifts in how eMERGE is scheduling their shifts and in order to kind of 
minimize how many are being exposed simultaneously and and take a, their shifts in a block instead of spread out over the month and and then get a week off in between and get some rest but also have time to recover if they were to get unwell um for the time being it's all still fee for service um and trying to think what else i might have missed certainly you know our our teams of we also have so we we have general um so we have gp and anesthetists as well in our community who have really um come together and, and change their call schedules as well to reflect the the current need to to be readily available for um COVID patients that might deteriorate that need or and or may require transfer to a higher level of care um and they've also got their plans in place for when and if we were required to maintain vented patients in our hospital which is not something we typically do um being available kind of 24 7 on a one and two call basis Thank you, Jen. Um, and um, you know, as I mentioned, we're getting lots of questions that we'll get to uh, after we ask the same question to Alyssa. Um, Alyssa, what's changed in your practice in the urban setting? Alyssa, you might be muted. Sorry, there you go. Um, and so uh, I was just saying that it's been really interesting to get to go third on this question and to be able to listen to David and Jen uh, speaking first, because I think that it's so impressive to see how they've coordinated um, variety of healthcare providers to come together and uh, generate this coordinated response. Whereas my gut reaction to that is, wow, I feel like we've been a little bit siloed in uh, our practice. There are seven of us. We have about 10,000 patients. Uh, and so uh, it basically falls to us to kind of keep caring for our patients. Uh, instead of our patients phoning us and then coming in for an appointment, they still phone the office for the appointment and our staff is still there with the same hours. That's we're open six days a week. Um, but instead of coming in for an appointment, they are being asked to, whenever possible, make an appointment for either a video call and that's the, the setup that I'm using right now. So we're using the docsd.me system, which is free, and I found to be pretty responsive. Uh, I'm very grateful that's been available. Um, or if they don't have access to a computer or don't feel comfortable on the computer, they're also offered the option for a phone appointment. Um, and I'm just kind of glancing at the questions here, and the top one says, uh, anyone still seeing patients in person? Uh, and so we have been sort of evolving um, as COVID evolves. We've kind of been changing our practice. Um, one of our major challenges, and I'll get to this later, is that we really don't have PPE. Um, so because we're not affiliated with a hospital uh, and it's not something that we access a lot of on a regular basis, we had a very small supply of masks that we would have used for only certain procedures, which we ran through quite quickly. Um, we have lots of gloves. We also had to kind of scramble to come up with some kind of eye protection. And then the biggest challenge for us has been finding gowns. That can be reused uh, and so we are seeing patients in person um, on a very limited basis so you do need a doctor's approval to book an in-person visit um, and essentially what we are doing uh, is trying to minimize the number of physicians and the number of patients in the office at one time so everyone has access to the day sheet and when we do book a, a patient for an in-person visit is coded like that we try and book only one patient per hour uh, so we have time to kind of do a full clean of the room 
we are, are trying to use full PPE to see patients in person as per kind of the updated guidelines. Um, but because of the no gowns, uh, we have taken to wearing scrubs in the office and then changing them in between patients. Um, and then, of course, we have our masks, uh, which we have been reusing until one of our local dentists generously donated uh, several masks to us. Uh, and then we have lots of gloves and we reuse our eye protection, which we wash with soap and water uh, in between uses. Um, so that is kind of how it's all shaken out. Um, I'd say that now I'm doing probably 85% of my visits via telehealth, uh, and the rest are in person. Uh, and I think, again, coming back to my kind of more geriatric skew to my practice, um, I have been doing a lot more over the phone as opposed to with using the video. Um, so that's been a bit unique. Um, and then the other piece here that I saw in terms of what's changed in my practice, um, someone had asked if uh, the COVID crisis has affected my patient flow. And it's very interesting. Normally I'd be booked about five days in advance would be like my next kind of non-urgent slot. And we always hold same day urgent slots for our patients if they are booking, you know, a child with a fever, that kind of thing. Whereas now I think people have kind of been not making plans. And I think that's been true in all areas of their lives, but also um, in medicine. And so, for example, this morning when I turned up for work, I'd only had four or five patients booked. And by the end of the day, the entire day had filled up. So whereas people are, don't seem to be booking further ahead, they are uh, often requesting same-day appointments. Um, another big part, because I did specialize in sports medicine initially, is that I do a lot of procedures in our clinic. Um, I also do all of our IUDs and endometrial biopsies. I just like procedures. And of course, these have mostly fallen by the wayside. Uh, in terms of guiding which of our um, visits we're having in person, we are relying quite a lot on the document that was circulated by the SGP and which is available, I think, on the SGP website for everyone to kind of help decide which patients are priority A to be seen in the office, priority B and priority C. Um, so we're using that plus honestly a little bit of clinical judgment and I am by no means an expert in trying to decide you know, who needs telehealth or not. Uh, and so I think that's one of the challenges that we're gonna talk about. Um, but that is uh, very much how my days have changed uh, over the last several weeks with COVID. Um, I will add that I've stopped doing health or uh, home visits for my patients just because it's, um, I worry about you know going into someone's home with a potential exposure and then going into another person's home uh, and just with trying to sort of not move between facilities, uh, we have stopped that. Um, and we've tried to make other arrangements for our vulnerable seniors, including getting volunteers to kind of give them telephone call check-ins and things like that. Yeah. Thanks, Alyssa. And uh, you know, your comment about um, decreased patient flow. I've certainly heard uh, not only from family physicians, but also from specialists. And I wonder, Jen, if you could comment to what you're seeing in your practice for the patient flows and how you're managing that. Jen, you might be on mute. Uh, we seem to have lost Jen. David, any, or Jen, you there? Can you? Oh, am I there? Yes, you are now. Okay, great. Sorry. Just testing my technological capabilities. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say 
for myself personally, because I've been so my, I've had to really take on setting up and running the respiratory assessment clinic. And I'm now one of the three docs that's rounding on our COVID patients. Um, I've been drawn out of my standard community family practice quite significantly. I've had great support from my colleagues that are really picking up on that piece for me. Um, and I've was supposed to be on holidays for the next few weeks, so some locums are really going to help out. Um, I certainly know my colleagues are um, in my in our our community practice have patients. Some of them have kind of like a, a schedule for the phone calls, but generally speaking, when patients are booked for phone calls, they're being told the doctor will call you at some point that day. Um, and so we're not as bound to standard clinic hours the same way, um, which is offering a bit more availability and freedom for people to to do the telehealth in between other shifts that they might have, that sort of thing. Um, I know the numbers, I think, for the pre-booked are down for a lot of people, um, but the same-day requests, as, as Alyssa mentioned, are certainly high. Um, and certainly in our respiratory assessment clinic, it's really all same-day service. Uh, they at least speak to the physician on the phone the same day, and then um, the in-person assessment will be booked for the next available clinic, That's whether that's the same day or the next day. It is open seven days a week, so we are providing that service, um, like I say, seven days a week. Thanks, Jay. And, and David, uh, same question? About yeah, so have you noticed the change in the flow? Yeah, so we've, we've made, I think it was good to put a percentage on how many patients we're seeing in person versus in in um, in the clinic, and I think it's probably close to about ninety percent are are managed either by phone uh, or telehealth, and then the remainder, uh, the, about ten percent, is what falls into the the patients that we still need to be seen in the clinic. Um, I don't, I wouldn't say that our numbers are. I don't think we're work so because we're sessional. I don't. I haven't paid quite as much attention to the numbers of patients that we see um, per day. But I know. I think for, I can speak for most of my colleagues that I feel like our work is up. Um, we're because we're trying to coordinate here and try and coordinate there. And there's a lot of people. One of the unique challenges in, in uh, the downtown east side of Vancouver is that we have a whole bunch of patients that are have a lot of ability or like a lot of difficulty with social distancing so we're trying to all sorts of different ways to try and facilitate that social distancing and, and, and sort of self-quarantining that, that that people can do um, by either changing you know trying to have medications delivered or um, or uh, and and most of like a lot of the population is on either daily dispensed or daily fitness medications so the whole mind chain frame shift on a lot of these things we're, we're trying to should negotiate at the same time as sort of seeing the regular patients that we would see. So um, I'd say, you know, most patients are, are pretty open to the, the change there. And I think we can, we're, we're generally pretty good at getting back to people same day um, on phone visits. They have booked phone visits um, as well as uh, uh, still some booked in clinic appointments. So. Thanks, David. And, and just one thing to flag there that you had mentioned about prescriptions. Uh, certainly, uh, we plan for next Thursday to have Dr. Lynette Reed uh, speak to opioid agonist therapy and uh, opioid uh, replacement or uh, therapy for patients on uh, opioids. 
Um, so we will dive into that deeper next week. Um, there's been, and this is open to all three of you, um, there's been a lot of a bunch of questions here, of course, with COVID, um, the challenges of uh, doing a uh, respiratory assessment or a lung assessment um, over using telehealth and over the phone uh, mention of using Roth scores. Do any of you have any comments about how you're managing this challenge? I think I think one of the unique things about our clinic, if I can mention first, is that um, those the the nurses that you see at the front there and the pictures that are on the screen, um, they have a, are able to do in full or relatively full PPE. We, we've also run out of gowns, um, but um, they're able to do uh, vitals and an oxygen saturation for our patients. So that goes a long way. Um, the regular screening questions. Uh, for COVID with fever, cough, or shortness of breath, you know, at any given time, a lot of our patients will be experiencing those things uh, for one reason or another. So it, yeah, teasing out um, that has been has been difficult, uh, but um, but we still are able to do a point of care respiratory exam for a lot of our patients. Alyssa, do you have any? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jen. Please, yes. Sorry, I I think in our case we're very fortunate that we we have the ability to offer patients a exam in a safe way through our clinic, our respiratory assessment clinic. And so either the patient speaks to the phone triage physician for that clinic in particular, or any family physician in the community can directly refer the patient in for an in-person assessment. Um, so it, it, there's still that, that challenge of deciding, do you think the patient warrants a physical exam or not? But if, if there's any question, then at least we have that, that safe avenue um, available, which I think makes people a lot more comfortable in, in doing those assessments over the phone. And Alyssa? Yeah, I have to add in that I think for me, the challenge is really figuring out who needs that in-person assessment and who is okay on the phone. Um, I have not, again, not at all an expert, but I've not found any validated just verbal questionnaires to um, understand uh, how bad someone's, dys someone's dyspnea really is. Um, and so I've kind of been taking on a bit of a case-by-case -case basis. I feel very fortunate that I know my patients pretty well, and so I know what their baseline looks like, which I think goes a long way. You can tell if someone looks different from how you usually see them. Um, and then I've kind of had to get a little bit creative. I've had people do jumping jacks on video for me. Um, I've asked them things like what their exercise, you know, like outside, how are they functioning, who's taking care of them. Um, and then unfortunately, because we were so short on PPE, what that process actually looked like here in Vancouver um, was if somebody needed a respiratory assessment because we have specific concerns around COVID, um, we were directing them to the UPCC, the urgent primary care centers. Um, which I think is you know, not really ideal because obviously if they go there, then they also are facing other exposures uh, and things like that. But um, we also were very concerned about um, our staff being safe and then also ourselves being safe uh, in the office. And so that's basically how we've been managing it. Although right after this, we've got another doctor's meeting for our clinic. And so it's possible that some of this will continue to evolve as the weeks go on. And um, Jen, you had um, mentioned about the respiratory assessment clinic. 
in Seashell uh, Gibsons. And certainly I'm hearing that a lot of rural communities are setting these up. Um, they've just started or are about to start. Can you comment a little bit um, to that uh, about in your area and the clinic that you're working in? Uh, in in what sense? Uh, there's uh, assessment clinics. I, I I thought I understood that you were actually working in a respiratory yes. assessment clinic. So I'm just curious Certainly. as to yeah, just what that how how are people directed to you and uh, how does that work as a workflow in your community? Right. Um, so one of the major strategies we've we've got. Through our, our MSA at our hospital, we developed a, a group of physicians that are kind of leading our, our community's response to, um, to COVID, both in the hospital and, and setting up things like the respiratory assessment clinic. Part of what's come out of that is very aggressive um, public communication. So putting out updates into the, the local newspaper and on the radio and providing information for our community about what's uh, kind of the recommendations about staying home and washing your hands and, and social distancing, but also the information that's locally relevant. And so it's been an avenue for us to be able to share with the community very easily that the respiratory clinic, uh, the respiratory assessment clinic exists and that that's kind of a good first point of contact for them. Um, and then certainly, you know, we obviously have the support of, of all the physicians in our community and in having the clinic functioning. And so um, either the patients call uh, text or email the clinic and then the MOA for the day would would reach back out to them to book a, a phone appointment or their family physician has already done the phone assessment and they're they're referred for the physical exam piece um, so there there are those avenues and then we also serve as the testing site for healthcare workers um, but that's that's organized through a separate phone line through the hospital but they do come down to our site to have the testing done as a safe space to do that Great, thank you. And um, you know, I know that all three of you mentioned um, your use of uh, PPE, and um, we we have a question uh, here. And, and I know that there's no clear answer because uh, of the shortage of them. But uh, I'm curious if you're using PPE, how long are you using a mask for? Um, and maybe Jen, since you're on sort of that front line with the respiratory clinic. Um, mm -hmm. Curious your clinic is doing there. So the most recent guidance I've been given by, you know, kind of infection control leads at our hospital is that the mask can stay on, the mask and eye protection can stay on in between patients that don't have any additional precautions. But because every patient we're seeing at the respiratory clinic is under droplet and contact precautions, we have to replace the mask on coming out of each patient interaction um, and gown and gloves obviously come off. You clean your, your eyewear. We have safety goggles or safety glasses, excuse me, that we're, we're using. They get cleaned in between each visit and then we redon PPE to go into the next uh, patient's room. So it is very PPE intensive. Um, we're fortunate that it's it's so highly supported by our hospital and so we're getting our supply from the hospital and they're ensuring that we we maintain that part of that is is the role we're playing in keeping as best we can the mild and moderately symptomatic COVID patients out of eMERGE and so appreciating that this is PPE just being redirected to a different locale um, 
but that's I, I know there's there's a lot going around about how long can you keep a mask on and it it's been made pretty clear I, I reiterated it again today I, I got the messaging yet again today that really if you come out of droplet contact precautions you need to change your mask and and put a new one on but if I was in my community clinic and seeing patients that were not under precautions, I would leave the same mask on. Um, being comfortable to do that, I think, for up to about four hours, four to six hours, I'm hearing. Okay, thank you. And what about you, David? You're seeing a, a, some patient population that's high risk, but not specifically respiratory problems. And I'm curious about what your practices are. So every, every staff member in the clinic that has patient contact at any point during the day, we just, everybody is going, is putting on, because we also are in a fairly old building that was not built with any kind of social distancing in mind. Uh, so we're all in pretty cramped quarters, physicians, nurses, all the staff. So um, we've made the decision to wear uh, a mask for each half day for everyone who's going to come into contact with patients and and more or less with each other because we up until recently we've had uh, staff that have also worked in the hospital part of the time and here and but now we're now we're sort of aiming to keep people at one site um, so and then again like similar to you Jen if we do have a patient who is on would would merit specific precautions where we're changing. Um, changing masks and, and, and gowns and everything uh, for each each one of those patients. But thankfully, because we're trying to minimize also the, the number of clinicians and, and staff that are, are seeing those patients that do need the in-person assessment uh, and having an assigned person each day. So we're trying to ration, yeah, ration, but still stay safe. And Alyssa, you're, you've said that you're in a situation where you don't have the kind of access that Jen has. Um, and I'm curious as to what, uh, what you're following in your clinic as relates yeah. to the math. Um, we are trying to do a bit of a workaround. Um, you know, the, the lucky thing about us is that we're not seeing patients kind of back to back to back because we are able to sort of intersperse them with telehealth. Um, and so we've been reusing masks prior to getting some extra masks that were donated from the community. Um, and we're still awaiting some supplies from the province. Um, we were reusing masks. Uh, basically, each doctor had their own Ziploc baggie. And once we would take off a mask, they would put it in there. Um, and I know some of the docs were also spraying their masks down at the end of a shift with um, isopropyl alcohol and letting it dry overnight and then returning at the same time. I have absolutely no idea uh, if that is reasonable as per the guidelines, but it was at the time better than no mask at all. Um, and now our supply has been replenished a little bit. And so we're just trying to be extra careful about which patients we see. Because of all of this, um, those are the things that we're doing for the average patient who walks in the door, whether or not they have respiratory complaints. But really, if you are calling us and we think that you need to be seen in person for a specific respiratory complaint that sounds infectious, we are diverting you away from the clinic. Excellent. And I, I just wanted to flag for the panelists that uh, we did have a question on how you are cleaning blood pressure cuffs after visits. And um, I, I felt that that question maybe could be something that we could refer offline and, and find out from some experts, unless one of you uh, 
knows the answer to that, um, we'll, we'll pass that on. Um, and do any of you know the answer right now? No answers in there. Um, Jen and David, um, you know, we've heard, I, I heard earlier, David, that you do have two sites to work. And Jen, I know that you're working in more than one site. And the question is, should we be limiting ourselves to a single location of work? Um, and I think, Jen, you've answered the question about visiting palliative patients. And, um, but uh, I'm curious as, as what your thoughts are about um, the number of locations of work that you're at. Maybe I'll go with you first, Jen, and then David. Sure. So the locations I'm working at now really are um, the hospital in COVID-exposed areas and a respiratory assessment clinic where I would be highly COVID-exposed. Um, I'm not at this time doing the in-person patient assessments at my family practice, and I'm not um, going to the long-term care facility or, uh, or doing home visits at this point. Um, we've had these conversations in our community. Part of the challenge is we have a very finite number of physicians that need to staff both the hospital, long-term care facilities, and community practices. And so we're doing our best, um, but certainly there are going to be some, there's going to come a time where the workload is great enough that we can't keep our, ourselves as, as divided in, in whether we're COVID exposed or not as we've tried. And ultimately, quite frankly, we're gonna have to just do the best we can with the manpower we have in our community. And David? Yeah, so for my, like I work in a community practice as well, and we've managed to be more like 99% uh, telephone in that in that capacity. Um, and I, any patient that I do see in that clinic, uh, I'm, I'm wearing, I, we, we thankfully, we actually do have a reasonable amount of PPE that we've, um, that we have for that. So I'm going in full precautions for each patient and I wear scrubs in that clinic. I mean, I'm not sure as to, as far as further, I suppose there's, uh, not not seeing any patients, and I'm conflicted personally as to whether only sticking to my one site would be in the best interest of my patients. I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah. So I haven't I haven't fully um, picked one or the other at, at this point. So it's it's everything's evolving and we're learning as we go. So very fair answers in there. I. Um, just wanted to flag for folks that are on the webcast that um, there's been a couple questions about uh, specific telehealth questions and some of the platforms. Um, there are some excellent doctor's technology office webinars on uh, Thursday mornings. Um, and if you check with doctor's technology office, they have webinars that are specific to technology and telehealth questions. Um, and uh, We'll try to uh, defer the answers to those questions to that place sure. in there. I'll just jump in yeah. really quickly in terms of, uh, I see the question about the doxy.me and I actually did last week's webinar um, explaining my work workflow for doxy.me um, and how I get it to work for free. And those slides and the talk are archived on the uh, doctor's technology office page, which is accessed uh, via doctors of BC. And I also have some uh, virtual tips, virtual care tips there as well as they also have some other excellent 
tips for virtual care, uh, well worth accessing to check it out. We, we have about uh, 10 minutes left before formally this ends, but we're going to, as I mentioned, uh, continue on and answer as many questions as we can and have our after. I know that um, you, you have to go, Alyssa, so uh, appreciate that. But uh, one thing I'm really curious about is um, there's lots of challenges uh, to what we're doing, and this is all new. If you could look at what's happening, and, and I'm curious as to what you think is your number one challenge uh, that you're facing and, and how you're addressing that challenge. What would be the, the thing that you would say there? Alyssa, I'll, I'll let you go first and I'll ask each of you. Sure, thanks. Um, yeah, I had to give this one a little bit of thought in terms of what is my biggest challenge. I think as a physician, um, a really big challenge has been to try and understand uh, what can be put off sort of in um, like to a telehealth visit or what can be deferred. There were some questions about, you know, labs and things like that. And I really have been trying my best to keep my patients out of the lab. So practicing a little bit more based on clinical judgment. And then of course, now it's clinical judgment from the phone or from the computer. And so that can be a bit challenging. Um, I think one of the things I've heard from a lot of my colleagues also is not knowing what the end date is, right? And so you can imagine how that if you know something is going to end in three, four, or five weeks, um, it's a little bit more straightforward to make a decision about deferring something. Um, whereas if you're looking at, you know, this sort of no clear end at this point, uh, it's a little more nebulous to say, okay, go to the lab now versus, you know, wait three or four weeks for that kind of thing. Um, so I think that remains a challenge. Uh, in this brand new telehealth setting. It's not something I've ever done. It's not something I was ever really trained to do. So there's been a lot of figuring out on the fly. Um, and then I think another thing that I really want to acknowledge that I've been seeing in way more of my patients than anything else is just the uh, intense anxiety that this situation has brought. Uh, I think people have really struggled to cope with the social distancing piece, um, which is lots of worries around what they might be experiencing. Um, and, you know, is this sudden chest tightness that I have, is this me feeling a bit stressed out about the situation or is this the beginnings of COVID? And so we've done a lot of kind of trying to walk people through that. Um, and I think that like, as things go on, um, we've been just seeing more and more and more of that. And so I think the psychological fallout um, will be substantial. And how about you, David? Yeah, I, I think that the biggest challenge, I think the biggest challenges that are going to face um, the downtown east side in my clinic in particular are yet to happen. I think when COVID does uh, come to the downtown east side, it's going to be um, it's going to be a big deal. We've, we're making provisions to, to have places to have um, patients uh, referred for specific shelter for self-isolation while we're waiting for swabs to come back. We've sent a few patients there already. That's it. Uh, there's one in the Coal Harbor Community Center, I believe, also in Roundhouse and Yale Town, so, and, and a few other places, I believe. And we're working on places where we could have um, patients who end up test positive to self-isolate. So these are things that we all have in the back of our mind. It's, it's, we also wonder about potentially some of the destabilizing influence of uh, extending prescriptions, not seeing patients, changing things code-wise. I know we're going to have a talk about that uh, 
in the future here. But those are the things that have probably preoccupied my own and my colleagues' thoughts the most for our patients. Um, uh, and then also the, the implication too of, of closing a lot of the services that are, we think would be pretty mandatory or pretty essential for a lot of our clients, like our groups and a lot of our, uh, you know, our, our, our related services. A lot of the, the community has also had to do some of the similar things. A lot of uh, volunteer organizations have shut down or uh, had to reduce services as a result. So we have a lot of people that are, are fairly vulnerable right now. Yeah, it, it's going to be a real challenge. And I, um, I'm glad to hear that you, you're looking at what potentially could come um, there in the, in the marginalized population. So thank you for that. And, and Jen, I'm curious about what uh, you see as your biggest challenge and how you look at you're going to overcome that. Uh, honestly, my biggest challenge right now is time and how drawn I am in so many different directions. And it's really in order to do the work that's needed at the respiratory assessment clinic and to do the rounding on the patients on the COVID ward and be available more than I typically would for, for hospital inpatients, recognizing these patients need frequent reassessment and, and ready availability. Um, it's really drawn me away from my community family practice. Um, and that that's the piece that's hard. And, and as Alyssa alluded to, not knowing how long this is going to go on for makes that an added challenge. You know, I have locums for a few weeks and then I, I have to figure out how I can use this all together. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate to have really supportive colleagues who will help, but I, I don't want to be neglecting my own practice either. So trying to, like I say, trying to piece all the right pieces together, I think, you know, and I think for my for all rural communities, that's going to be an, an that challenge is going to continue to escalate as we continue to be drawn more and more into the acute care side as more and more patients are unwell. There's only so many of us and only so many hours in a day and we're not going to have the capacity to provide the same quality of, of primary care to our outpatient, to our standard, you know, the, the non-COVID primary care that's still needed. Um, I think that's going to be a, a challenge in rural communities and I don't have a, a good answer as to how we, we address that yet. We're learning as we go, um, mm -hmm. building this airplane as we fly, and appreciate that. Uh, Alyssa, I, I know that you had said that you had to leave at 8 o'clock for a meeting. I wondered if you had any last words before we continue on with the questions for, um, for Jen and if David can stay or not. Uh, no, thank you so much. Just that I'm, I'm so grateful to have this platform and to be hearing from so many other docs across the province. It's, uh, it's really great to know that there's this good community out there. Um, and then, you know, if anything else comes up, feel free to pass along any questions, I guess, through the, the chat. And if they can make their way over to me by email, I'm happy to try and get to them at some point, probably later this week. Thank you, Alyssa. And, and Jen and David, are you able to stay on? Because we have a number of questions yet that haven't been answered. Are you both able to stay on? Sure, yep. Alyssa, thank you very much. Um, and uh, good luck at your next meeting. I hope that it goes well. And appreciate your dedication and, and your help with setting this up and answering the questions. And take care. Great, bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.
So, uh, David and, and Jen, the um, next question that's been pushed up to the top um, has been, what have you been saying to patients about uh, masking when they're going out in, in public, um, whether they're homemade masks or, or otherwise? David? Um, you know, some of, some of the patients have been arriving with masks and I am... Um, and in that case, I think, I think the I haven't been specifically telling patients to go out and wear masks unless they have infectious symptoms themselves. If they have a cough or, or anything like that, then I, I, we we have them wear a mask on their way to going to self isolate. Um, but uh, specifically, haven't been giving um, additional uh, advice uh, other than that. I don't know about you, Jen. Yeah, no, I haven't uh, been advising people to wear masks if they're asymptomatic in the community. Um, I know that's an evolving concern. Um, I, if I, if people asked if they, sh if you know, about wearing masks, at the very least, I would say, you know, save the medical masks for the healthcare providers, and they can they can wear. The homemade masks for being out in public if they're asymptomatic. Our community is also currently working on strategies to, we've had some incredible donations of homemade masks um, kind of flooding our way and we're trying to find ways to connect those masks with people that are self-isolating at home so that they, because you can't buy a mask anywhere where I live, um, and so that they would have something to wear if they're in the same room as a family member, that sort of thing. There's certainly been some information that's been coming out and we're hearing new information every day about masks. And uh, I certainly know it's a challenge, but um, some of the recommendations are that the key people to be wearing masks are those that are coughing and sneezing, that masks don't protect against the virus particles coming in, um, but will perhaps protect from spreading droplets uh, from going out from people that are coughing. And so I appreciate that in there. Um, That's what I certainly would focus on for for wearing the masks. I think that uh, being in Vancouver and seeing all the people wearing masks, I see a lot of people will be walking around. They'll be eating with their mask down around here, and you know, and you just you start to wonder just how how effective it's down around their yeah. chin. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I I was on a plane seeing stewardesses wearing masks with big gaps. Uh, for the nasal bridge, nasal bridge. So even if they're being worn, as you were saying, not necessarily being worn properly. Um, this is, I, I think, Jen, you're already answering, you know, what the next question is about in more rural areas. And David, maybe you can help us um, give that perspective in an urban area around um, what are you doing if you get a call in to see a patient and the uh, the patient, adult, or a child has respiratory or flu-like symptoms uh, and they need assessment. Are you just, how are you managing that, that call in when it comes to you? Um, so from the urban setting, um, if I'm working at my, uh, the Pender Community Health Center, the more addictions focused clinic, um, then we are still seeing those patients in, in full PPE. Um, if I'm working in my other clinic where we're asking those patients if to sort of self 
I believe that um, the the some of the guidelines for whether the 811 guidelines to patients for whether they should be assessed for these symptoms is is includes a significant breathlessness. So I usually have a conversation with the patient about what's how their symptoms have sort of evolved and if they're feeling worried enough that they're sick enough that they would um, merit any hospital attention. We're advising most of them to go to the the downtown uh, urgent primary care clinic um that's uh the one near st paul's um and i know that they've geared up physician wise they have a number of more physicians there to be able to take on that role sort of as the as a as a site that's going to be seeing more more potential ambulatory cases and jen in in your smaller community is there a decision tree that offices are using to determine whether they get patients get sent to your uh, uh, urgent respiratory center assessment center clinic. Um, there isn't really. There's nothing formalized, so it would be up to individual physician discretion. Um, for the physicians that are doing assessment and triage for the respiratory assessment clinic itself, certainly, we've modeled off the kind of descriptors for mild, moderate, and severe symptoms, and depending on their assessment of how really how short a breath a patient is, or if there's any other. Um, concerns for ability to care for yourself, um, you know, bearing in mind people's comorbidities and what might be a marker for more severe illness. Um, having those more, those patients at higher risk for more complicated illness and, and having any patient you have any concern about really um, assessed. And I think people are using a, an appropriate but a lower threshold for having the patient come in because we do have the clinic available. Um, so that we're keeping patients safe. And is there actually a, a pre-assessment that's done before the patients are uh, coming in to either your community clinic, David, or that you know of, Jen, um, before they're coming into a regular clinic? So a walk-in patient hasn't reported any symptoms, but is is coming to the door of a clinic, not your respiratory clinic or your specialized clinic, David. So my in my um, my community clinic, we have signs on the door. The door is actually locked, uh, but our staff is there. So and the the signs redirect to call this number, and you're going to get the front desk, and you'll get a phone appointment with the physician that day, um, and usually very quickly. Uh, so and then there's usually one physician at a time in the clinic. Um, working at the back doing telehealth. So um, that's where that very small percentage of patients would end up um, actually coming in. So we don't, I mean, it is walk in as in they walk up to the door and see, or they would call online and not have been a patient at the clinic before. Um, um, so yeah, so that's, that's how we're managing that. So no one's actually coming in unless it's been pre-approved by the physician. So they have some kind of pre-assessment questions? No, it's, a, it's up to the physician discretion. So um, okay. whether they feel they want to see the patient. So, yeah. Okay. Jen, in sorry to cut you off. No, not at all. In our clinic, um, the MOAs certainly are asking about fever and cough um, 
kind of cough or cold flu symptoms um, before any booked patients are coming in. So things like maternity patients, or we have a nurse on site who does injections for patients. So their essential injections are still happening. So any patient that's coming in for booked appointment under those conditions, they are being pre-screened the day before. And of course advised if they do develop symptoms to call ahead. Um, if they are otherwise being booked in for an in-person appointment, then they've been, our doors aren't physically locked, but same principle of people aren't being able to walk in and just see a physician. So they've spoken to a physician and the physician has decided whether it's appropriate for them to come to our, to the, the clinic or not. And I think it's interesting that pre-screening, of course, we all know about the fever, uh, cough and headache as common symptoms and increasingly they're finding that loss of sense of smell is mm -hmm. um, without the rhinorrhea uh, is an interesting uh, symptom. And we're certainly seeing some people with GI uh, symptoms mm -hmm. and diarrhea. As well. So all of those are certainly flags in there. Um, the next question is really interesting and it's one that I ran into when I spoke to uh, a, a young physician uh, in a rural community in that um, Many of the clinics or communities are designating um, the youngest or young MD as being one of the people working in the front line um, and working in these respiratory assessment clinics and, and being exposed to walk-ins. Any comments to that, Jen, uh, of decisions and, and how um, you, for example, were uh, chosen or volunteered to do the work that you're doing? Uh, we certainly are seeing some of that in our community. Um, you know, for instance, my my telephone triage physicians for the respiratory assessment clinic. You know, that's a, a, an ideal role for these semi-retired and retired physicians that are are available to help. Um, that keeps them safe and is a way that they're comfortable providing care right now through telehealth. Um, I certainly appreciate for myself being in a younger demographic. Um, that's. Part of why I'm I'm on the front lines, um, and and feel that that's a an appropriate place for me to be right now. Um, I, but we are very much in our community. It, it's it's individual physician choice, and and we've, you know, our anesthesia team has a very broad age demographic, and they are have had the conversations amongst their group, and they all want to be equally involved and, cover, you know, on the front lines just as much, um, no matter what their age is. And so it, I very much respect um, and honour people's personal choice in, in where they want to be and where they feel safe. But if, if they don't feel safe, I also respect that that's, that I respect that choice. And how have you approached that in your community clinic, David, that same question? Um, I know that... Uh... I think every, everybody's practicing still in the same way. I think the general anxiety per, about the personal physical consequences of the virus are lower amongst my younger colleagues and myself um, than, than for my patient or my, the, my colleagues who are in their 50s or 60s. I think there's a little bit more, I mean, obviously with how the virus affects different ages, um, but we haven't done anything formally to say that the younger physicians need to to do more of the frontline work, um, yeah, no, that that hasn't hasn't been fleshed out that way at all. Okay. There was a question um, before, and um, Alyssa had partly mentioned it was one of her challenges. I'm curious as how you're managing 
who gets lab work uh, and imaging, and um, where are you directing these people to? So, you know, again, David, you know, from a urban community perspective, I'm curious what your thoughts, and, and Jen, is that different in rural? So I can speak to both the clinics that I work in for that one. In our, in our, uh, the, the vulnerable patient population, we're uh, deferring some non-essential blood work, um, patients who with HIV who've had regular labs that have been fine, we're delaying them by a month or two. Um, uh, even hep C tests of cure we're pushing because they run on the same machine as the, the COVID uh, for like, HCV RNA, uh, we've been, you know, reasonably pushing some of those back a little bit for the small pieces, but um, and then, but still, um, still our patients are are getting the blood work. Y usually, it's more like a, a battle to to get our patients to do and agree to blood work a lot of the times rather than the other way around. So, uh, but I know imaging. I think we're doing a little bit less of for sure. Um, the way that I'm getting around. Um, like we, thankfully, the EMR that I use in the urban clinic, we have a patient portal, so they're able to, um, I'm able to upload forms and they're able to download them either on their phone or print them at home. Same thing with doctor's notes or notes for that sort of thing. Um, so uh, we've been doing that and they've kind of been going into the lab still, but a lot of things we've been, I've generally been putting off a little bit or, um, yeah, it it really is patient to patient though, uh, particular right. thing. And how about in your community, Jen? I'm I'm assuming that most of or all of the lab work is done at the hospital. We do have uh, community lab as well, uh, so that is still an option. Certainly, the home lab, the the mobile lab piece has been severely cut back, and so we've certainly seen extension on. Um, and, and the what labs they'll actually do has been cut back significantly as well. And so we're certainly more limited in what we can order. Um, and then we're certainly extending, you know, if patients have stable INRs, really extending that out a much longer length of time. Um, using that discretion as to how essential is this lab right now versus can it wait. Um, with our only option for imaging is at the hospital and certainly all uh, elective non-urgent imaging is being postponed at this time so only urgent and emergent imaging is being done and we are um, that's part of we've really with our public messaging really tried to get patients to call ahead um, so if they're coming or to be assessed through the respiratory assessment clinic and that way if they're a COVID suspect and need labs or imaging they're brought into the emergency department through the ambulance bay entrance so they're not going in through the main uh, entrance where the rest of the patients would go in and that allows us to also have them not walk through the entire hospital to get labs and to get imaging done. Um, we have a policy we've just instituted that there, if you need an x-ray for COVID concerns, it's a portable chest x-ray in the department uh, to minimize all that cross-contamination risk. So we're limiting certainly imaging on the whole, but we're, we're really trying to keep um, our lab and x-ray uh, safe and, and keep what's available in the outpatient setting uh, safe for the vulnerable patients who need it, who aren't uh, infectious. Thank you. That's um, we're giving that perspective. Uh, you know, it, it's really coming down to uh, relationships and and uh, personal decisions in there. Um, it, 
there's a question about uh, managing wound care. And certainly in, in larger uh, settings, there's often specialized clinics for wound care, such as I'm sure, David, you've taken advantage of. And in more rural, it can be um, personal by a wound care nurse or by the physicians themselves. Any comments to how you're managing wound care right now? Jen? Um, so we have a nurse at our clinic that would do some degree of wound care. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure to what extent she's still doing that. I think she would do some. She certainly would do the suture removals and that sort of thing. In terms of more advanced wound care, we've generally tried to involve home health. And certainly I know the home care service that's available is, is radically reduced as well to really the most essential. And so I would think the majority of our wound care at this time is actually being done through out of the hospital. So we have an ambulatory daycare uh, component to our hospital. Um, that is still being staffed and has its own entrance um, that kind of keeps people away from the otherwise potentially infectious patients. Um, but yeah, it's mostly being done by the health authority through the hospital nurses. And then one of our, our physicians, if you needed a reassessment, um, it would be a, a non-COVID rounding physician that would come and do that reassessment in the ambulatory daycare setting, which is otherwise a non-COVID setting. Thanks, Jen. And what about you, David, in, in either of you two settings? Yeah, in in so pretty much exclusively in in the Pender Clinic uh, in the downtown east side. So wound care is a big part of uh, what nursing does in our, our or is not in generally nursing, but it's a big part of what our clinic does in the community. So uh, it's still going. I believe fairly similarly to how it has been before, but with the the sort of triaging and making and making sure that if patients are infectious, we have them in uh, of the designated one of the designated rooms that we use for um, for COVID patients. That's where they'll receive their their wound care if they're if they're in that in in that way, and then they're in uh, the nurses are in um, full PPE to to do the the, the wound care. Um, I, I home health also shares an office with us. They're upstairs, so I think that they are still doing some, but I think it's reduced again as well. Um, I'm not sure exactly though. Okay, thank you. Um, there's been a couple questions. One is very specific as to, uh, it sounds like it's more um, in hospital with trajectory of uh, pediatric cases, which will flag is something that may come up for uh, future webinars since it's specific to uh, facility care of pediatric cases. But I'm curious for both of you in your community clinics, um, what's happening with well baby visits, um, especially those under six months? Um, what are you doing about those? So personally, I, I probably wouldn't be the best asset. So half of my half my clinic is adult only, um, and then the other portion, I think I have three babies or three people under three infants under a year uh, in my whole practice. So I, I I haven't actually seen one of them yet. They've been avoiding me. So. <laughs> and what about you, Jen? And I know you're away from your community <laughs> practice, but what would you what would you do in this situation? I think um, I would do as much as I could by a telephone assessment and see plus or minus, you know, my thought is to try to bring Zoom or telemed with video capacity into it. Um, you know, if, if you can get a weight that's accurate, um, 
those sorts of things, finding ways to be a bit more creative about how you do the assessments, but still making sure that some of these major milestones are still being hit and not being missed. Um, and if, if they warranted a physical exam, I would bring them into my clinic and do that. I think that's appropriate at this time. And I think we're, we're ma making every effort to keep our clinic safe uh, as a, a safe space for patients still to access care. Um, I know it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. Um, I know the, the service that public health is offering has really been cut back as well, and, and they're not offering home visits for new moms and, and babies and that sort of thing. I know my maternity care colleagues are certainly doing more home visits in that newborn period um, to really help support um, moms and babies uh, to make sure that things aren't, you know, lactation issues aren't, aren't arising and things aren't falling through the cracks. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think they're also avoiding interacting with the medical system right now in a large part in the, for these these populations because they're there's a sense amongst patients that there's more urgent things that doctors need to be dealing with and so they're deferring all of their routine care and and kind of saying you know use that time for someone else right now and people are also there there is fear in our community of of interacting with the healthcare system and having to come in and is it risky for you to show up in the clinic are you going to get sick so um i think it, it's coming from both sides, both the patient side and the physician side, as to deferring some of these kind of assessments at the t present time. Jen, can I ask you a question? This is something that actually came up with my colleagues. Uh, we had a, mm -hmm. uh, a Zoom friend meeting uh, of old med, uh, med classmates. So, But one thing that came up that was happening with some of my friends in Alberta, they were deliberately calling uh, some of their more elderly patients to talk about goals of care uh, and DNRs, if this hadn't been discussed, is, are you guys doing that at all in your community? Is there, is there a discussion mm -hmm. about having that done before the bulk of the, yeah, the driver? Yeah, we we've been quite trying to be quite proactive about that in our community. We've certainly had all of the nursing homes, uh, the long-term care facilities send physicians with a, if they're, if a patient has uh, a designation of M3 or higher, so if they were to go to a higher level of care, we've asked family physicians to look at that again, have those, some of those conversations earlier with patients um, to really um, at least bring up the issue. They mean people may not quite be ready to say, no, don't take me to hospital, but you know, I think we all recognize that at some point those decisions may be taken out of their hands and having some of those conversations earlier um, is something we've really advocated for. And we've likewise advocated amongst our physician community that they be more proactive in, in reaching out to your more frail, your vulnerable, your complex care patients and really start to have some of those conversations sooner. Um, and I've, I've done that with at least a few of my patients um, they're not easy conversations. People, you know, maybe don't feel like they're ready for that phase, but being frank about what this could look like, particularly in the setting of COVID um, and how poor the, the outcomes are in, in older demographics if they get to the point of, of needing, you know, respiratory support and ventilation. Um, I think people having a clear picture of, of what it could look like is helpful um, so that Hopefully it doesn't happen, but if it does, then it's not the first time they're they're having to think through some of these really difficult decisions. I just uh, flag that there's uh, been uh, four very good articles that Stephanie can make available to the uh, audience um, that are clinical decision pathway and long-term care residents, COVID-related uh, clinical 
scenarios in long-term care, um, the position on frailty and critical um, conversations and difficult conversations, serious conversations with patients in long-term care to help guide you on that, that we can make mm -hmm. available for you. Um, there has been a question that came up before and I mentioned it and it came up, it's coming up again around the Roth ROTH score, uh, which yeah. is uh, a patient count from one to 30 in their native language in a single breath as rapidly as possible. And the um, you, you count the number of seconds and found that the counting time greater than eight seconds has a sensitivity of 78% um, and a specificity um, for 73% um, uh, for um, uh, dyspnea and uh, a correlation between that score and uh, the pulse oximetry uh, uh, of less than 95% reading. So uh, to people that have asked that question, um, that that's the comment on that in there. Um, and my sorry, understanding from the, the webinar the other night, the critical care one is there, there are teams, uh, there's research ongoing through in Vancouver uh, through VGH on how to make that more sensitive and whether if we add an exertional component that might make it more sensitive. So I know that's an evolving, an evolving yeah. tool that hopefully we'll get clearer information on. Yes, exactly. Um, we only have a, a couple minutes left, um, and um, you know, before we end, and I apologize to the people that still have questions outstanding, and uh, I hope that we can come back to them and um, help use help those questions guide future uh, webinars. Um, but I, I, I wonder, Jen, if uh, and David, if you have any final comments about these um, strange and new times that we're in. Jen? Um, I think the last piece I'd, I'd leave off with is just how important it is that we look after each other in all of this. Um, our, our community has been very fortunate to have some strong uh, support for physician wellness and we've really made that a priority in our community and are, are making sure that there are offerings available either group drop-ins or mindfulness sessions or um, having direct contacts available one-on-one -on -one with physician uh, peer coach and with a psychologist in our community both with lots of, of really relevant experience working with healthcare providers um, but I think that it's challenging enough doing our job at the best of times and doing it during a pandemic and, and foreseeing what might come is been very challenging for all of us and, and making sure we look after each other and, and create communities of support for each other, particularly if you're not already working in a, a setting where, where you have a community of support, finding ways to reach out. And I know there are some drop-ins available now through the doctors of BC, um, but just making sure people are well supported and taken care of for themselves during this time as well. Thanks, Shannon. And David? Yeah, I definitely second that. The, um, that we're, we're still remembering to take time for ourselves and, and things outside of, of work when, when it can, because I find it, it easy to get uh, caught up in just 24-7 COVID um, and to try and step outside of that is, can be really therapeutic for a little while because we know could be more of a marathon rather than a sprint. Um, the other thing that I found at our clinic that's been really valuable is um, we are, we're constantly solutioning things and, and it's a brand new territory for, for everybody involved. And we try to have a really good attitude of not 
uh, laying blame on anyone for any decisions or things that may have not gone the way that we try and do and trying to be just as collaborative as possible and knowing that everybody wants the best outcomes to happen. And uh, so um, just a very forgiving and, and uh, you know, uh, approach to, to building consensus and, and trying to make decisions uh, uh, policy-wise within the clinic and then how we're managing patients. So, um, and then I guess the other thing that I've noticed as well, and Alyssa was uh, alluding it to it before, is I think there's a tremendous burden generally in the population of uh, pending uh, mental uh, uh, unwellness uh, from, from isolation, from this constant sense of fear. Um, and uh, I think that we're going to see some effects of that. Uh, and to, to, like I, I, I think I, there's a, a few of my patients that come up in my mind when I think about how this might be affecting them. And um, I know that we've seen a lot of community physicians have seen their volumes drop, uh, especially urban uh, family practice. Um, we've seen our volumes drop quite a bit. Those might be the ones where we initiate the, the phone call. We, we initiate the, the time to, to, um, to reach out to those patients. And I know that that would mean an absolute world from a, uh, to hear a phone call from the, the, patient, the physician checking in. So. And, and even uh, taking the plunge and uh, doing a video chat um, to see your face is very mm -hmm. much appreciated. You know, I, I really want to express my sincere gratitude to both of you and to Alyssa who had to leave. You're all very dedicated physicians. Uh, you're excellent speakers and educators, and I really appreciate the time you've taken from your very busy lives and the heavy and critical clinical duties be able to answer uh, all our questions tonight. Um, I'm sure, I, I certainly do, and I'm sure all our audience really appreciates it. And I really hope, if possible, that we can continue to bring you back in the coming weeks and offer you more sessions like this. I, I really wanted to thank all of you in the audience uh, for attending, and I hope this session was of value to you. And really, please, uh, please take a few minutes right now to complete the attendance and evaluation forms that were emailed to you in order that you can both receive the study credits and to provide feedback for tonight's webinar. And finally, I, I thought you also might want to know about some other webinars that we're offering over the next few days in our COVID-19 webinar series. On April 7th, we'll have maternity care issues with Dr. Deb Money. And on April 9th, uh, addictions man management with Dr. Lynette Reed. So to all of you, to our panelists, take care. Thank you very much. Continue doing the great work that you're doing out there, and good night. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And I'm also pleased to tell you about our two other shows on the UBC Medicine Podcast Network. The Metamorphosis Podcast was created by students for students, and it's long-form interviews with medical specialists about their careers, their passions, and their practice. And we hope that it's going to help med students in navigating their career and choosing a specialty. That's metamorphosis spelt M-E-D. Our third show, Primary Care in a Pandemic, looks at the changes in primary care in BC during COVID-19. Doctors Morgan Price and Sarah Fletcher talk about ways primary care clinics can and are adapting to this crisis. They try to keep things real and practical so you can apply these ideas in your practices. Brought to you by UBC's Primary Care Innovation Support Unit, or ISU, in the Department of Family Practice. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in for the rest of our episodes. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 